everyone. Welcome to another Your Amigos Christmas podcast, holiday podcast. Uh, Tom and I are here with Tanya Dorf from City of Hope, also of Your Amigos Cup fame. Tanya, your performance in the Your Amigos Cup at our meeting was was maybe MVP worthy. We didn't we didn't actually give an award, but you would have definitely been in the running. So it was outstanding. Shilpa was exceptional as well. Shilpa was exceptional. Yeah, yeah, maybe next year we'll have a separate trophy. The, uh, Petros knew the speed of sound. Petros knew the speed of light or something. I yeah, and I think, um, but uh, but there were a number of yeah, a number of people excelled themselves. Tanya, Tanya had useful knowledge, by the way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the, the steep anyway. one question. The steep one question was was phenomenal. But we, also, we digress. Not, we digress. Yeah. No. 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 I think steep one is prostate cancer, Brian. It is. It's part <laughs> of it. <laughs> Anyway, we're here today, Tanya, thanks for joining us to talk a little bit about sort of year in review prostate. So uh, maybe just introduce yourself briefly, and then why don't we kick off with lutetium and sort of PSMA4 and sort of your thoughts on where where the data is currently and, and maybe what are the gaps? Hi, everyone. I'm Tanya Dorf. I'm the um, GU Section Chief at City of Hope in California. Um, and yeah, so PSMA4 was this long-awaited study. You know, our patients with castration-resistant prostate cancer have heard about this radio uh, radio ligand therapy um, targeting PSMA that uh, can induce these really, really robust responses um, and have been unhappy that they have to go through chemotherapy first. Um, so what we've been waiting on was to see, obviously we thought this agent could work pre-chemotherapy, but the question was how well would there be advantages to using it first? Um, and so, you know, it was obviously a positive study. Tony, can I interrupt? I apologize. Are there any biological advantages theoretically in using it before? We always like to use new drugs earlier in the disease um, and we like to avoid chemotherapy. Oh, I understand that. But are there any biological reasons why this would work better prior to chemotherapy? To be honest, I think the biology is a huge question mark because we know PSMA is an androgen receptor regulated gene, and yet we don't yet fully understand when is the optimal time relative to things like AR pathway inhibitors. Um, there's not, to me, a biologic reason that pre-chemo or post-chemo would be particularly more successful, it's much more about how do we maximize expression of PSMA so that the radioactive particle gets delivered to the target. And so I think a bit of work still needs to be done. You did ask about gaps, right? So gaps in our knowledge include, you know, do you need to be on castration therapy or an AR antagonist? What's optimal? Um, those sorts of questions. And, and Tanya, I mean, in terms, you know, patients don't want chemo, right? That's been my experience in prostate. So obviously moving it earlier makes sense, but who, what's the phenotype of patients you'd give chemo to first? Is it that rapidly progressive visceral disease? Is it sort of the obvious or are there different phenotypes? So it is very hard to put a totally asymptomatic patient on chemotherapy, right? So I think that's part of the, the challenge in prostate cancer is we have PSA, that tells us the cancer's active well before someone's feeling it. Um, and then the scans even, you know, may change without a patient feeling anything. And so to then put them on chemotherapy where we know there's at least a short-term decrement in quality of life uh, can be a challenge. So who do I put on chemotherapy? Certainly patients who are symptomatic, it's an easier sell. Um, 
it's uh, also obviously very good for rapidly progressing. Although if someone's really rapidly progressing with visceral Mets, you know, I'll usually biopsy and look for neuroendocrine transformation. And then we might even be looking at, at platinum rather than just docetaxel, right? So, um, Tanya, I, think, I don't want to steal, I don't want to steal a thunder of the outcome of this trial. Cause we know the vision trial after chemotherapy had a survival advantage and this pre-chemotherapy didn't. Is there, we also know, and we dragged our friend Chris Sweeney on the show, uh, he might come and say, well, the charted study and Peace One and other trials all showed actually early chemotherapy was important. So other people might come out and say, actually, it's chemotherapy that you have to give really early. And these other treatments, we haven't shown that giving them early is important. And the reason why you haven't got that overall survival signal in this earlier trial is because actually it's chemotherapy that you have to give early to get survival and the reason why the survival signal is occurring after chemotherapy is because it's the timing of the chemotherapy that's relevant and late chemotherapy is bad and early chemotherapy is good and that's why we get this switch in survival signals what do you think about that hypothesis i think it's a reasonable hypothesis um I think the biology of prostate cancer. It's okay to be rude. I think you sound, you sound lukewarm. You sound lukewarm. The biology of prostate cancer we know changes over the course of the disease. And um, while charted certainly showed upfront chemotherapy for metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer was hugely beneficial. You know, generally we've thought of castration resistant disease as being where you start to get a little bit more proliferative activity, uh, maybe a different biology. But I think potentially there's some synergy between the chemotherapy and the androgen receptor um, targeted agents, which helps uh, these studies in the, the hormone sensitive metastatic stage. You know, there were some negative studies in like biochemical recurrence with docetaxel. So how early is is early, right? Maybe there's such a thing as as too early. And I, I think we'll we potentially may find that with the radio ligand therapy as well. So Tanya, just maybe to expand on Tom's lukewarm hypothesis. I mean, the, there was a huge amount of crossover in this study, something like 84%, if I remember the number, something, something high, which is sort of a credit to the study design. We always criticize studies that either don't have crossover or where it's not very good, but this one had a very high rate of crossover. And while there was an RPFS advantage, the OS hazard ratio was actually a good bit above one. I tried to make a, a big deal of this during our Euromigos meeting. I was roundly criticized. I think Raina McKay attacked me personally, as I remember. I was on so. your side. My reflection <laughs> when I came to the podium, I asked Am I way off base there? I mean, any, I think when, you know, when I start seeing hazard ratios well above one, I get worried, you know, and, and FDA and other people worry about the same. So is, is there anything there or is that just sort of noise right now? Well, I mean, maybe Tom's hypothesis has more merit than um, I seem to have given it credit for. I mean, you know, docetaxel is also a good tool. Um, I, I think we are always worried when we see survival trending in the wrong direction. And particularly with this class of drugs, people have raised concerns about using it early and uh, whether there's going to be some late renal toxicity or some other toxicity from the radioactivity that's getting delivered, you know, total body um, essentially in, in this format. So I'll be interested to see. I think the the survival data were totally immature. There was the crossover, which was a very patient 
friendly design. Um, but, you know, the other aspect of this trial is that the control arm was a AR pathway inhibitor, a second one, which we know is not a strong control arm. And unlike vision where, okay, it bested the, the weaker control arm, but you had therapy going head to head against cabazitaxel sort of supporting its value in that space, uh, we don't have that. It would have been really nice to see what this uh, looked like compared to chemotherapy. Tanya, building on that point, had the control arm been contemporary and allowed more active therapies such as taxane therapy, carbazotaxel, docetaxel, would the hazard ratio have been worse than 1.18? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't, I mean it, wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been better if you'd had a control not. arm. You could agree with that. I mean, you have to have equipoise going into a trial, right? So if I knew the outcome, then I wouldn't do the trial. But no, but but you would admit that if you'd allowed chemotherapy into that arm, that arm would have done slightly better. Do you think? Yeah, that's fair? I, I think. Um, this is the my only second hypothesis it, of the conclusion. <laughs> The only reason it might have gone the other way is because of this crossover design. So when you choose an inactive comparator arm, um, people are going to cross over sooner and yep, more yeah, robustly, yeah, right? Yeah. Which might yeah, diminish yeah. your ability to detect the survival advantage. Whereas if you had a more active comparator arm, it would be later that they would cross over. And so I don't know. I, I'm was not there sure. more censoring? I, can't, I don't remember if there was more censoring on the control arm. Because if people were leaving early, there'd be a lot of early censoring in the control arm. Because the PFS, it's unusual. We didn't actually talk about the results of the study, which with hindsight was probably a mistake. Um, <laughs> traditionally, what happens is you talk about the results and then we do the discussion. We did the discussion first this time. It's called a topsy turvy <laughs> podcast. We're trying to do more of that to confuse, to confuse the audience. Um, We're not journalists, the, clearly. <laughs> the results of the trial showed this really impressive has a PFS hazard ratio. I think it's something like 0.45 or something along those lines, maybe even lower. And then the OS of 1.1. And it's unusual to have that huge disconnect between the two. Um, I've not really seen that before because you would expect if it having a massive PFS advantage, it's, it's difficult to explain how those patients that are progressing so much later are being rescued and subsequently potentially overtaking the study arm which suggests there's something unusual going on. We've not talked about the biomarker, uh, of course, and we always tend to try and do that. And we haven't talked about the number of cycles. Brian and I did a podcast, which you probably studied very carefully, Tanya, <laughs> on the run-up to the show, on, on one cycle in conjunction with immune checkpoint inhibition, one cycle of lutetium. Um, have we got the number of cycles right? Um, what, what's, the, uh, what's the story with the number of cycles? And have we got the biomarker right? Right, so those are all important points to raise. I think the PSMA PET scan should be a very good biomarker. You know, some of my colleagues and I have been interested in whether whether a neuroendocrine prostate cancer, which you know we normally think that dedifferentiation means it won't respond to traditional therapies, but you know, is the PSMA PET a strong enough biomarker to predict that you know even a biology that shouldn't respond will because the PET shows that the treatment can reach the disease. And I think we all anecdotally have seen responses. So I do think PSMA PET is a very um, important biomarker for selecting patients for lutetium PSMA and ultimately optimizing, as you've alluded to, how many doses and in, in sort of what time frame. Um, also, you know, some of the newer radiopharmaceuticals that are being developed are trying to optimize the delivery of the radiation um, in a way that would maybe induce more complete responses since, you know, 
there's a lot about fractionation of radiation and radiobiology that um, has not yet been optimized. So this is, you know, really exciting frontier for us. It's a, a great new agent that's really helping my patients in the clinic already, but we have a lot more to learn. Do you do you think we talked a little bit about this at the meeting as well about adaptive dosing? You give like they did an NZP, you give call it two doses, you do another scan, you see if they still have uptake or not. I mean, do you think we're headed there, or you know, is the sort of commercial force of this just going to be ah, let's just give six cycles and be done with it? Well, you may be pleased to learn that the discussions we had at your amigos are already impacting my practice. I mean, I think I'm it's thrilled. very. <laughs> Very hard to look at someone who has a practically complete response after two doses and say, I'm just going to keep giving you this medicine and I don't know what cancer it's going to find because I don't really see anything <laughs> left on your scan, right? right. It, it doesn't make logical sense. Of course, I try to treat on label, but I am now um, doing two doses of scan and for select patients waiting um, because uh, in my practice, I have seen patients who really get beat up by doses four, five, or six. What does beat up mean? Is that is that is that um, myelotoxicity or what? What is what is beat up? Um, so some of it's the dry mouth that can. I know that typically it reverses and it's mild, but I think we also see those patients where it becomes an impact on taste and smell, and they lose a lot of weight and become weak. So it's. Um, it's not just myelotoxicity. I think, you know, we see some of that as well, but um, it's it's more overall uh, deterioration. You can get a fair amount of nausea and then the, the dry mouth can manifest into more severe symptomatology. Tanya, Christmas is nearly upon us, so we probably need to move on. I was wondering <laughs> if we should move on to ODAC and PARP inhibition and just do five minutes on uh, on where you you currently stand with this. Do you believe there's a best PARP inhibitor? If so, which one? Is there a study which is most comprehensive? If so, which one? Did the FDA make the right decision around the biomarker? <laughs> Just a few easy questions. For you. Right. I think well, it'll be the new year by the time we address all of that. <laughs> Um, I mean, obviously, we we got a lot of data, and while people talk a lot about the differences between the trials, you know, the the one resounding message is that PARP inhibitors are profoundly effective in the setting of BRCA2 alterations, and probably using them earlier rather than later is the right strategy. Um, and so not just these combinations, you know, like Talipro2 with enzalutamide and, and talisoparib, which I think is a very, very good and effective combination, um, and Propel and Magnitude, you know, with the others. Um, but, you know, Triton 3 really, I think, was important because we got to see what the PARP inhibitor does compared to chemotherapy. I think that was one of the most important pieces of information, actually. Describe that study to us, given, give us a breakdown of that study, what it showed. Uh, so this was Rucaparib um, versus uh, Dealer's Choice, which in this case allowed uh, docetaxel or Abby or Enza after Abby or Enza. And so um, it was in patients with BRCA or ATM alterations only and showed a, a very strong uh, RPFS benefit, 11 months versus six months Um but if you split that out, the docetaxel was eight months and the AR pathway inhibitor was four months. So um, we were able to see directly that the PARP inhibitor was better for these patients than 
docetaxel, not that we wouldn't use docetaxel, just we might choose the PARP inhibitor first. And in some ways, that was the most pure test of a PARP inhibitor, right? It's kind of gotten muddied, at least in my mind, with the combinations. And I think that was to Tom's question of some have shown combination results and others not. And it gets confusing, I think, to say, well, well, are there differences among the PARP inhibitors as to why they might combine better? Is it just a trial design issue, i.e. prospective allocation, you know, into HR subsets versus retrospective, et cetera? How do you how do you sort that out? I mean, those are all those all factor into how we view these trials. They were different designs. There are different numbers of patients with um, genomic alterations that are relevant in the different trials. Um, but at the end of the day, consistently, even in combination, uh, there's better performance when you have a homologous recombination repair deficiency. So, um, you know, the, the fact that the approvals were different is is hard to understand for sure. I think, you know, one issue is that we don't know whether these drugs perform better in combination than in sequence. Like we have not truly answered that question. Um, and so Olaparib is available for HRR positive patients post uh, mm -hmm. AR pathway inhibitor. I don't know if that factored into the decision to label the Propel result, the Olaparib Abbey, just for BRCA because the HRR positives can still get Olaparib monotherapy, whereas like Talapro 2, like Talazoparib is not yet approved of, for all these other HRR alterations. But I think bottom line is we all want to see a little bit more compelling data that the combination is better than the sequence uh, because there is added toxicity and cost. And, you know, people make a point of uh, patients don't get multiple lines of therapy, they drop off. And so using the combination means people will get a drug they wouldn't otherwise get. And I definitely hear that. But, um, you know, I think there are arguments on the other side as well. So maybe comment and a question. So not to speak for FDA, I don't, I don't think they consider other settings when creating a label. I don't think that was the issue, you know, in, in creating the label for a laparib. But um, how are you using it in practice? Like functionally, how are you using PARP inhibitors in practice? Is it all HRR? Is it a subset? I think BRCA we can take out because the benefits are so profound. But but for the other non-BRCA HRR mutated or in, or in any non-HRR patients, like how are you functionally using it in, in practice? Well, I don't have so many patients. Um, I don't know what it is about my patient population, but I don't have so many that get to MCRPC without having seen an AR pathway inhibitor. And um, these studies did not enroll patients mm -hmm. who were progressing on Abby or progressing on Enza. Um, so I haven't used a lot of the combination. I think if I have a patient who is MCRPC de novo without an AR pathway inhibitor, I would have a conversation. Um, and then it's just a matter of whether patients are, you know, open to the increase in risk of anemia and transfusions and, and um, you know, other toxicities and, and whether they can afford them. Tanya, is it fair to say that the original study um, with um, Alaparib, um, the original randomized trial monotherapy, which uh, showed activity, it showed survival signal, it was you know, in heavily pretreated patients um, in the HRR population, that was, that was the first study. It launched a whole series of co earlier combinations trials, and all of those combination trials 
have shown that the BRCA population seems to be really strong. The addition of the second drug is uncertain. But the third really important point I think you've made is most patients, strictly speaking, they should be getting LHRH and a sort of a, an ABI or ENSA up front. And, and, and so the, these studies aren't as applicable as they were when they were designed. And, and it may be actually that we're back to monotherapy, HRR or BRCA patients um, getting PARP inhibition. And it doesn't make a huge amount of difference which drug you're giving. Is that a huge oversimplification? No, you're you're right. And if you think about it, some of the data that got presented this year, like Embark um, and Formula 509, it just feels like the field is headed towards using AR pathway inhibitor intensification even earlier in biochemical recurrence when we're using salvage radiation. So, you know, more and more patients are going to have been exposed. And I think we'll really want to interrogate uh, whether there's still an advantage. So where where does PARP inhibition go from here? Maybe just to wrap this topic, like, are we are we going to get other big data sets? Are there going to be other big combinations? Or is it, you know, we're, we're kind of settled into this, definitely clinically useful. We all might have a little different opinion about partners and which drug we use and when we use it. Yeah, um, I mean, unfortunately, some of the early data for PARP inhibitors with immunotherapy have not panned out. I think many of us are interested in in what other combinations might be successful with PARP inhibitors. And I think uh, we will see those big phase three trials in BRCA um, positive patients in metastatic hormone sensitive. You know, we'll be looking forward to those reading out. Everything we move earlier seems to have greater impact. And for this population, a metastatic hormone sensitive, we may see a huge impact of incorporating PARP inhibitors. So that that will be really exciting in the, in the year or two ahead. But Stampede you know, is one of those trials, is that right? Stampede's one. Are there other studies as well beyond Stampede? Yeah, there's a talisoparib study and, and a, I'm sure a couple others that I'm not thinking of right at the moment. Sure. So earlier in the disease, getting better, which is exciting. Um, triplets, is, is that where we're going? How do you design that trial? Because I'm guessing you'd have to give triplet therapy to some patients. Do you give maintenance PARP inhibition? What does the design of that trial look like? Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern about long-term use of PARP inhibitors. So if we move it earlier, patients could conceivably be on it much longer. And we are seeing an occasional report of MDS or leukemia with the PARP inhibitors. So, you know, um, I, I like a concept of induction, kind of, you know, like the upfront docetaxel is six doses, and then you just maintain with the doublet. So I think a strategy like that might might be important. But these are different agents, and for BRCA altered patients, there might be a different amount that's needed. Could it be if we get more sensitive in our detection methods, like we've talked about, lutetium, and if you give it up front for a couple of doses, they become PSMA PET negative, you might stop and then restart. I mean, could it be the same with PARP inhibitors if we had really sensitive circulating assays for HR mutations, right? You've like like an MRD state in, in leukemias, which I know nothing about, but I know they might treat until they're below a certain level and then stop or and then restart is it something like that it's like you read my mind brian that's exactly what i would say is, <laughs> oh, wish you I know. Could do that. tom do you hear that <laughs> yeah i was just saying it's something i find very difficult tanya i find it very chaotic i find his mind a difficult place to visit <laughs> a popcorn and kettle black yeah i think ctdna could really be helpful or other circulating assays to to guide how much treatment, you know, that's what we really need is a way to look inside and see 
how much cancer have we killed? And PSA just doesn't give us a full answer on that. Tanya, what, what else would you like to talk about? Would you like to talk about circulating biomarkers or do you want to talk about steep one, which is your favorite topic? At the how about the mo most exciting <laughs> in, in this past year? What do you think is the most exciting data? Obviously, besides what we've talked about, is there a drug? Is there a trial? Is there an approach? It could be completely obscure that, that we've missed that you say, wow, this is really something. This is going to advance the field. Well, of course, I'm going to say immunotherapy, right? And AMG 509, the bispecific targeting, uh, well, I should say the T cell engager targeting STEEP1 was very exciting. It was very well received. I thought it was exciting as well. I thought it was exciting. Because we've had trouble, right? Weaker immunotherapies like Cipulusal T, you know, do a bit, but don't get us where we really want to be, which is these robust and, and durable remissions. And T cell therapies, we think, can do it, but the toxicity has been a challenge, like with the AMG160 PSMA targeting by specific and some of the other PSMA targeting by specific. So um, it's really exciting to see a by specific that's potentially tolerable that could move into phase three based on, you know, what was presented, which was quite a high efficacy, more than half of patients, you know, responding and um, some some durability and, and a much lower rate of cytokine release syndrome, which is really the thing that requires patients to dose in hospital, um, use tocilizumab. Sometimes there are a lot of steroids. And, and so getting getting a, a better therapeutic index is is key to moving immunotherapy forward. Do you think, maybe last question for me, do you think that we'll be sitting here in one, three, five years and there will be an immunotherapeutic approach that's a standard of care in prostate cancer? I hope so. Um, three to five years sounds like a short timeline when I think about that was very short drug right. development. Whatever timeline, 10 years, however you want. So that that's ambitious. Oh, 10 years is too long. 10 years is too long. <laughs> I mean, anything that in 10 years. <laughs> but we're certainly working on it from all different uh, ways of activating the immune system. And we may end up needing combinations, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors um, don't do much by themselves, except for very, very select prostate cancer patients. But together with cabozantinib, we're seeing a lot more activity. So it may be also that even the T cell strategies require some kind of combination strategy. But um, I do think immunotherapy will become standard of care beyond cipulusal T, which obviously already is. But um, I, I hope I will be alive to see it and have contributed to it. Tanya, I've got a question, but I've got a first going to say that I think that the, the steep one by specific, I think that's going to bring T cells into the tumor. I guess Cipulusal T was designed along a similar method. I think immune checkpoint inhibition in, 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 um, immune phenotype deserts with, with a low immune infiltration, a low tumor notational burden, I think that's always going to be challenging. So I think one has to look at prostate cancer from an immunotherapeutic perspective, completely differently from lung cancer and melanoma and renal cancer, where we know we already have T cells and some of them are working. Um, but there is the opportunity to, um, to combine, and if you can bring the T cells in and then make sure that the right sort of T cells with immune checkpoint inhibition. So I think combinations there might work. One of the questions that I've got is the proof of principle around this new therapy. We never did that well, that in my opinion, I the others may disagree. But we never did it brilliantly with cell T. There was a bit of sort of, I, got, I get the impression there was a bit of voodoo around it in the end where people either believed it or they didn't. How do we make sure that we can not run into those same problems again and convince people from a biological perspective that it's doing what it says on the tin? Well, it's a lot easier to 
tell people it's working when the PSA drops and there's an objective response radiographically, right? So that I yep. think was what was missing with the Belusal T. Okay, okay. I mean, we say answer. overall survivals are our gold standard endpoint, and yet achieving that without the PSA decline and without the objective response, I think, is what made people so suspicious about what Sibilusal T was doing. It clearly activated the immune system, but it focused on the dendritic cells, which, you know, is a slower way of training the immune system compared to just putting in T cells like with CAR T cell therapy or engaging T cells and, and trying to drive them into the tumor. But whether we have to do something first to the tumor immune microenvironment in order for even these more powerful T cell strategies to work. Um, so it may be that combinations will involve something that modulates the tumor immune microenvironment or whether we need to rescue, whether there's exhaustion um, and something like adding a checkpoint inhibitor uh, to rescue the response. You know, these are some of the things we're mulling over and looking at our data and um, trying to understand uh, which way to rationally drive combination strategies. Um, if you were lucky enough, Tanya, to be invited back to next year's annual review, do you think you're going to be talking about um, cabazatinib in combination with atezolizumab as the new standard of care? And is Brian being overly pessimistic when he <laughs> says that it's not a new standard of care when we know there's actually a positive Randomized phase three study on a press release, I don't, I don't know the detail of the trial, none of us do, um, of a Tesla plus Cabo versus um, second generation and blocker. But what's the story there? Is that going to be, obviously we don't know the results. What are you looking for in that trial? Is PFS enough? Do you need OS as well? What does single agent cabozathinib do? How come this combination's worked with an immune checkpoint inhibitor? Nothing else has worked before. Um, what's the story? Yeah, I think we will be saying that it's now in our therapeutic armamentarium. Um, cabozantinib does modulate the immune microenvironment in positive ways. You know, Andrea Apollo showed that in the context of urothelial cancers. Um, so I think the combination is valid. Uh, the, the one issue will be who is uh, appropriate um, because it was only in patients with measurable disease. Um, and kind of enriched for visceral uh, population. So that's not our everyday bone-only MCRPC patient. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how uh, FDA will think, handle that. And if the EMA comes back and says there's no third cabozatinib alone arm and cabozatinib alone has a PFS advantage in this setting, what, what happens there? Well, I mean, that would be a sensible argument. We know cabosantinib had single agent activity, but what we're seeing with the combination with the tezolizumab is clearly greater, and cabosantinib failed to hit its target in those phase three trials in monotherapy. Um, but so maybe that's a reason to say we really want to see overall survival and not just RPFS. Let's say you're sitting in the audience at ASCO GU or ASCO or EAU or ESMO, but I, I genuinely don't know when this is going to be presented. I hope it's very soon. The press release came out a couple of months ago. What would you be seeing? How would you determine whether the trial was, it's a positive trial, we know that, for PFS, it's PIT's primary endpoint. What is practice changing in view of the fact we know single-agent CABO has activity? What is, what is practice changing? Do they have to have a trend towards OS? Or can they get away with an OS of 1.1 again, as the previous study we chatted about at the beginning? What sort of PFS advantage is practice changing, in your opinion? 
Well, I think a strong hazard ratio, you know, something below 0.7 um, with a trend in OS would make it uh, easier to adopt. I think we also need to look at the toxicity. Um, you know, I was part of the cabozantinib monotherapy studies, and even though I saw it working for some of my patients, uh, even bone only, uh, very clearly the toxicity at the dose we had uh, used at that point which was quite high. I want to say it was maybe even 80 or 100. Um, you know, that was very, very tough on patients. Um, I think the combination with the 40 milligram cabozantinib and atezolizumab is much more tolerable, but we always have to look at toxicity and, and make sure that for the amount of PFS that the patients achieve, that their, their quality of life isn't diminished too much. So like, as with other regimens, you know, it's hard to judge based on press release, right? We really need to see the details and the hazard ratio and the toxicity and quality of life. I mean, I think it's interesting given the history of each individual drug or those kind of drugs in prostate cancer that suddenly this combination was positive. So I, I hope it's, as Tom said, I hope the data is presented soon. Tom, Tom you, let's wrap up. Yeah, I've got a last question, Tanya. So favorite Christmas film for you first, and then I'm going to ask Brian the same question. In fact, why doesn't Brian, why don't we go first for you? Favorite Christmas film, Brian? Favorite Can Christmas give... film? Yes, indeed, yes. Um, I have you know, probably a type film. A Christmas Story. Oh, Christmas Story, yeah. That yeah. was a pretty, pretty dry out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't really remember that, but anyway. Tanya, can you do better than a Christmas Story? A Christmas <laughs> story? I'm sure there's something out there. My kids and I are huge fans of Elf uh, with Elf. Will Ferrell. It's hysterically yeah. funny. Hilarious. Hilarious. That is better than mine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think mine's uh, probably Saving Private Ryan, something like that. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. We watched that at Christmas time in our family. No, no, a movie about Christmas, Tom. <laughs> oh, no, that's not what I said. I said a Christmas film, not about Christmas, Ryan. <laughs> What's your favorite film about Christmas? We can't end with that. Oh, um... Okay, Die Hard 2. Oh, that's better. <laughs> I think it was Die Hard 1 was the one around Christmas time. I don't think that was. I'm not sure. I thought that was yes. Die Hard 2. Sure. All okay, right. good. Tanya, sorry good. about the ending. Happy holidays. Thanks for joining us. Lovely to chat. Tanya, happy Thanks Christmas. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.